Good morning, everyone. I greet you in Jesus' name. I invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts uh, chapter 17. I appreciate very much the, uh, the fact of Easter, the fact of the resurrection. Back over the time of my dad's passing, uh, the uh, funeral home was very helpful. And Trey sent us a, um, a draft copy of the little memorial uh, pamphlet that would have name and uh, date of birth and death and information. Uh, about him and then about my dad and uh, where the church, where the service would be and who was involved and so on. And then uh, it had at the bottom the final resting place uh, where he would be interred and thinking of the burial. And as we thought about that, we thought we'd rather use something else. It is not the final resting place. And there is a resurrection. Uh, and because Jesus rose from the dead, we can be sure that we will also, and we can be with him and experience joy forevermore. And I am grateful this morning that we can know something about joy now. Uh, that we can know something about a, uh, a life that is meaningful and has purpose and uh, is fulfilling and is a blessing. And it is in, uh, it is always true. It is especially true in, in times of, of trouble and difficulty. But... Uh, it has a lot to do, it has everything to do with God and the fact that God is, that God is accessible. We can reach out to God and we can know God and experience what he has to offer us, salvation and through Christ and um, a life, a holy life that is uh, useful in the kingdom. But many of the world, the majority of the world, does not know that. They may worship, they may worship many, many gods, but uh, they don't know God, the Heavenly Father. And I'd like to notice the account here in Acts 17 of Paul in Athens. And he was waiting there for Silas and Timothy. You remember at, at the beginning of the chapter, there was persecution in Thessalonica. He had been preaching there and <clears throat> the Jews were, got upset and were, drove him out of Thessalonica 
Then he went to Berea and was preaching there and people were responding and the Jews in Thessalonica heard about it and they sent troublemakers to Berea. And so uh, Paul's uh, co-workers said, let's go somewhere else. And they went to Athens and Silas and Timothy stayed back in, uh, in Berea. But Paul uh, sent whoever was with him, I forget who it was, back to Athens and told, or rather back to Berea and told them to tell Silas and Timothy to come to him. So he's here in Athens, Greece, waiting for Silas and Timothy. And Paul was never one to be idle. And he was watching the, the city, observing the people of the city, many, many people, old people, young people, children, moms, dads, grandparents. And he saw that the city was totally given over to idolatry. It was filled with idols. And it stirred his spirit uh, in verse 16. One historian said that there were more idols in Athens than in all the rest of Greece put together. So these people were religious people, but they didn't, they didn't know God. They worshipped idols. And Paul was moved. And first he went to the synagogue as he was, was his practice to tell the Jews and the proselytes about Jesus and the gospel. And then he went to the market to meet the heathen, people that were idol worshipers. Whomever chanced by, he would talk about God and about the gospel and about Jesus the Savior. And the Epicureans and the Stoics uh, came upon him probably in the marketplace and heard him talking to people. Maybe he preached. Uh, it doesn't just say how all that worked. But some of them said, well, what, what is this babbler talking about? He seems to be introducing another god or strange gods. And so they took him to the Areopagus in verse 19 to hear him out. So they could learn this new teaching. We'd like to know what this all means because these people, it says, were constantly searching for new ideas and new philosophies. So in verse 22, Paul took the floor and he began to speak. This was just the opportunity he wanted. And he said to them, uh, men of Athens, from what I've seen, you are very religious. You fear and reverence many gods. Uh, we'll begin reading at verse 23. <clears throat> well, verse 22, uh, last part. I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious or you are very religious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. 
God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which the will, he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Evidence, as we talked about in men's Sunday school class. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. And so Paul departed from among them. Howbeit, certain men clave unto him and believed, among the whom was Dion, Dionysius the Oropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. An altar to the unknown God. And Paul said, I know him. He is the creator of the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he doesn't dwell in temples. In uh, Don Richard's book, Eternity in Their Hearts, he found this evidence of this story in his research that about 600 years before Christ, there was a pestilence, a plague of some kind in Athens, and many, many people were dying. And a priest took black and white sheep and led them to the Areopagus and had them sacrificed to whatever unnamed God controlled this plague. And the plague stopped. And so an altar was built there and erected there to this unknown God. And so they revered this, worshipped this unknown God. Now, I don't know if Paul knew that history, but Paul knew God. And he told them, this is a real God, and he doesn't need, he doesn't need us. We need him. He doesn't need man's service. He doesn't need to be fed. He doesn't need sacrifices from us in order to exist. Rather, he is the source of life and he sustains life. And we, man, 
were created by God. And that is how all the nations of the earth came to be. And God created man that he should seek the Lord. If perhaps man would seek for God, if perhaps he would notice the message of creation, for example, uh, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, Paul wrote in Romans. And if, if men and many have, have tried to figure out what is behind, who is behind creation, or find other evidence, or God somehow speaks to them as he has to, uh, to, uh, to Arabs, in these, in these days even. And they discover God. <clears throat> Though he be not far from every one of us. And Paul went on to explain that it is time for men to repent of idolatry and wickedness, that judgment is coming and the resurrected Jesus is the judge. Now, through Paul's courageous testimony here in Athens, the Athenians, the worshipers of the unknown God, had been introduced to Jehovah, to the real the true God. And then uh, they scattered after the service. I don't think Paul had a benediction. It doesn't give that show that he gave one. It sounds like it just kind of ended. Some of them mocked a resurrection. How absurd. Or they said, we'll talk about it another time. But certain men clave to Paul. Certain ones believed. There were a few. Dionysius and a woman, Damaris. But the rest just mocked or, or said later. There is no record that they ever did come back to Paul again. That there was any other Discussion And Paul soon after left for Corinth, we see in the next chapter. And as far as we know, there was no church ever organized at Athens in that early church era. There is no epistle to Athens in the New Testament. And we don't know what happened to those several believers. Maybe they followed Paul and his company. There's some traditions, uh, primarily Catholic, uh, which don't seem to have any factual basis from what I could find that there was something there in Athens, but uh, there doesn't seem to be good evidence for it. So the Athenians, Paul left, and the Athenians were left in the darkness of their own philosophies and idolatries. 
still showing reverence to that unknown God, bowing, kneeling, making offerings to those altars, however they worship them. I'm sure that that was sad to Paul. Uh, He was used to people ignoring his message. He was thankful for those who responded. But it didn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way today. Because we have a God who wants to be known, who wants to make himself known, who is accessible, the true God. Paul knew him. The people of Athens did not, with the exception of that handful. So I want to consider several characteristics of God, several characteristics of people that, uh, that make someone or make God accessible. What makes God accessible? One thing that affects accessibility is proximity, how close, how near, or how far away. In the late 1800s, many Russian Mennonites migrated from Russia to Canada. And there's a little book, uh, The Earth is Round, by Margaret Epp. It's a sweet story about this migration through the eyes of Cornelia Harms. Harms is a Russian Mennonite name. Their whole colony was leaving with just a few exceptions. And they had some family that were in other colonies. As I recall, it's been a while since I read the book. So uh, they were packing up, they packed up everything and they went to a town where the railroad went through and there was a lot of bustle and loading of, of um, property and suitcases and belongings and whatever onto the train and the goodbyes, the last goodbyes, the hugs and the tearful goodbyes. Uh, Cornelia had a married sister, I think her name was Agatha that uh, was not going along. And as the train pulled out of the station and people were waving and straining for last glimpses and so forth, Cornelia knew that she would not likely ever see her sister again or their family. Eventually they got to Canada There were the occasional letters, not often, but occasionally a letter would come. It took months, months and months for a letter to get from Russia to where they lived in, I think it was Manitoba. And of course, no phones, no emails, and they were far apart. And distance affected access. It affected communication. They were not close. But God is close. God is not distant. Paul told the Athenians, though he be not far from every one of us. 
In Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24, God says this. Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places where I shall not see him? Saith the Lord, do not I fill heaven and earth? Saith the Lord, I am everywhere. Wherever you are, I am. The psalmist in Psalm 139. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou compassest my path and my lying down. Whether going or resting, God encircles me. God is everywhere. He knows. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. It is as though he has besieged me. He is all around me. And even his hand is on my shoulder. Access is affected by how near or how far. And God is near to us. He is near to everyone. Whether realized or not, God is near. Access is also affected by approachability. Does he want me coming to him? You know, you know some people that you just kind of hesitate to go up and strike up a conversation. They're a little cold, a little aloof, maybe seem to have uh, a chip on their shoulder or something, and you just kind of hesitate to just go up and start a conversation. <clears throat> Esther 4, in the book of Esther, tells about Haman's wicked plot to destroy the Jews. And it tells about Mordecai communicating with Esther, who was the queen. And they weren't talking together. A servant was going back and forth between them. But Mordecai's message to Queen Esther was, who she was a Jew, go to the king and plead for us. And she replied, well, he hasn't. He hasn't called me to see him for 30 days. And a person doesn't just walk into the king, into the king's presence uninvited. Uh, they could be killed. I could be killed. Mordecai said, don't think that you'll escape. Who knoweth? Whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe this is why God put you there. And Esther agreed to go to the king. If Mordecai would gather all the Jews for three days of fasting and I assume prayer. I don't think it says prayer there actually. Then I'll go. And if I perish, I perish. Uh, approaching the king. Uninvited was serious business. So in chapter 5, all this was in chapter 4, but in chapter 5 she dressed herself 
in her royal clothes and she went to the king's palace. I wonder if she wasn't trembling. I wonder if the guards weren't a little surprised to see her coming. And she walks in, sighed. I'm imagining. She's thinking, this may be the end. I imagine her hesitating briefly and then taking a deep breath and stepping in to the king's court, her eyes on the king. And he saw her. I expect if there was any conversation uh, in there with the king and his courtiers, I imagine it stopped and it was quiet for a bit. And then the king held out his golden scepter, which was a signal that he accepted her presence and her coming. And she steps forward. I wonder how far she had to walk. And she put her hand on the scepter, as I recall the story, and and touched it. She was in. What a relief. What would you like? He asked. You can have whatever you wish. Up to half of my kingdom. Which was kind of the obligatory uh, little addition that kings threw into their uh, offers often. And she said, I'd like you to come to lunch. You and Haman. But God is not like King Ahasuerus. God is approachable, very approachable. We approach him in reverence, but we have a standing invitation from God. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, I'll minister to you. I'll meet needs. We are created to worship God. Now we approach God through Christ. Notice in the scriptures, in the gospels, often, verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door. Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Hebrew writer said, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And in Ephesians, Paul wrote, but now in Christ Jesus... You who sometime were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. We approach God through Jesus. There is a way. He is approachable. (coughs) Access is also affected by attentiveness. How well this person listens. How well they pay attention. 
Have you ever talked to someone, you're trying to tell them something uh, that you think is interesting, but they are kind of looking past you, beyond you, around you, glancing at other people, maybe smiling at somebody, fidgeting a little bit, and you sort of suspect. It kind of begins to dawn on you. I don't think they're paying attention. You're probably right. That's probably how the prophets of Baal felt there on Mount Carmel. You know, they were ranting and shouting louder and louder, and they were becoming more and more active and dancing in a frenzy and even cutting themselves. And Elijah kind of mocked them a little bit, said maybe Baal isn't paying attention. Maybe he's busy with other things and not paying attention. God is not like that. Psalm 65, 2. O thou that hearest prayer. O thou that hearest prayer. Unto thee shall all flesh come. This is a God who pays attention. A God who cares. Uh, Sometimes at COP we get uh, letters or calls from people that have questions or would like to talk to, contact an author. And here within the last couple of months, a lady wrote to us and... um, I ended up uh, giving her a call and she was a very unhappy lady and she had, she was Amish actually and she said that she was baptized when she was 18 but she wasn't converted until she was 42 but she just feels no connection with God at all. And she, she does not believe God hears her prayer. She quit praying. She doesn't pray anymore. She doesn't even know if God knows that she exists. She's not sure he even knows who she is. What a sad, sad, situation. God is a hearer of prayers. Not just heard back there in the New Testament times, but he hears now today the I am. Then shall ye call upon me and ye shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you. Jeremiah 29, 12. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. And you remember Paul, when he was converted, God's spirit told Ananias to go to Paul to inquire at the house of Judas for somebody called Saul of Tarsus, for he prayeth. 
God noticed that prayer. I think Paul was pretty much praying all the way from up the Damascus road to Damascus. God noticed that. God heard that. We have access to God. So how close will we be to God? How close is God to us? We have these invitations, the standing invitation with God. And we've seen how, how close God is to us, how approachable He is, how attentive He is to us. There is another part to uh, being close to God. You know, God was who he was there in Athens, close to all those people who were worshiping the unknown God. A question would be, how close are we to him? What is our proximity to God? James says in chapter 4, verse 8, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Through, through Christ, through the blood of Christ, Paul told the Athenians, repent. Draw nigh to God. How close are we? The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him in truth, that are seeking. How approachable are we by him when he comes to us with his truth? How open are we to his truth? Send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles. The psalmist said, how I love thy word. People who resist aren't approachable from God. They quench the spirit. They grieve the spirit. They skim over the touchy verses. And Jesus said in Revelation 31, 20, Behold, and this was written to uh, Christians, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in unto him and sup with him and he with me. Close. Are we close to him? How attentive are we to him? Incline your ear, Isaiah 55. He that hath an ear to hear, or he that hath ears to hear, let him hear, Jesus said in Matthew 11. So what altars might be in our hearts? Would we have an altar to an unknown God? 
to a barely known God, to a sort of known God? Are there other altars, other idols that would hinder us? God wants us to know Him. Do we want to know God? Just uh, yesterday morning, I happened across uh, 367 in the hymnal, and it uh, fit this message. Oh, for a closer walk with God. In the first verse, oh, for a closer walk with God, a calm and heavenly frame, a light to shine upon the road that leads me to the Lamb. But then there's a question. Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and His Word? You know, so what has happened to my first love is kind of the question of the second stanza. Where is that first blessedness that I knew when I first saw the Lord? In stanza three, the dearest idol I have known, whatever, whatever that idol be, help me that idol to dethrone and worship only Thee. He kind of deals with uh, the idolatry in his life. So shall my walk be close with God. The last verse then is a conclusion. Uh, the renewed walk, the renewed life. So shall my walk be close with God. Calm and serene my frame. So purer light shall mark the road that leads me to the Lamb. We have a God who is near, who is approachable, who is attentive. Are we near to Him? And are we approachable by Him? To him coming to us. Are we attentive to what he has for us? And what a blessing to walk close with the Lord. And how it affects us. Our victory, our fruitfulness, our direction. And how it affects our mission on the earth. May the Lord help us to grow in our relationship with him and fulfill his purposes for us here. Shall we have a closing song?